0: reach out to me at stephanie@mission.org at to see how your business can benefit from partnering with our team at UpNext in Commerce. Welcome to UpNext in Commerce, the show that takes you to the front lines of what's happening in digital retail and beyond, with conversations from fast-growing startups to the Fortune 500 and everything in between. You'll get a glimpse into what's next. I'm your host Stephanie Postles, the co-founder and CEO of mission.org. And I'll be your guide through all the trends, innovations, and hot topics in the world of commerce. SMS messaging is a valuable channel for brands that know how to use it. Brian Long, the CEO and co-founder of Attentive, a company that has grown to more than 1,400 employees and helps brands like TGI Fridays, Kendra Scott, and Urban Outfitters find their way through the SMS battlegrounds. He joins us today to talk about growing the company and the strategies his team is putting into place that helps their customers win. All right, let's get into it. What are business leaders thinking about when they aren't winning a business? family, travel, the latest TV show? Yes, yes, and hmm, maybe. But how about quirky business opportunities or little discussed financial trends, or maybe even plant medicine benefits and alternative wellness? Mission Daily is back, baby, and our flagship podcast is better than ever. Mission Daily is the podcast for the business builder, the thoughtful marketer, the team manager, the blue-collar worker looking for new ways to think about life, finances, and health. This is for the people who want to break the status quo and laugh a little or a lot along the way. Join me, Stephanie Postles, and my co-host, Albert Chow, as we address the subjects, thoughts, and trends that business leaders think about, but don't often talk about. Tune into Mission Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you there. Brian, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, so I want to start and hear a bit about your entrepreneurial journey before Attentive. I want to hear about the company you had, and you get acquired by Twitter. I want to hear about some of that backstory.
1: Yeah, sure. Well, you know, I've been doing tech startups. I guess my first startup was was even in like middle school. So uh,
0: wait, okay, what was that? I want to hear about this startup first. We're gonna about to change the whole interview up. <laughs> what was your middle school startup?
1: So I was making uh, making websites for people, you know, for like small businesses and things <laughs> like that designing logos for people, you know, doing stuff in, like, Photoshop and things like that in, I guess this is probably, like, 1998, 99.
0: Where did that drive come from? I mean, was it your parents who were kind of pushing you, or you were seeing experiences from them, or, like, yeah, where did that interest come from?
1: Yeah, I'm not really sure, actually, where it came from. Um, Not my parents, but they're not, they're not really very entrepreneurial folks. I, I just always liked businesses. My parents were always kind of very supportive of me, uh, trying to do business stuff if I wanted to. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's so just of going after ideas and trying to build things. Um, so I was just kind of always doing that.
0: Okay. All right, cool. So then what was your next thing that you embarked on?
1: Well, growing up, I had someone, uh, who lived down the street for me who kind of had similar interests. We both went to college and then when we, we graduated from college, we were roommates together in New York and we worked on, you know, various startups and things on the side, this and that after graduating from college in 06 for a couple of years. And we also worked at a bunch of companies, tech companies, big and small. And then him and I started our first company together in 2012. It was a company called Tap Commerce. You know, we we pivoted a number of times on what that company did and ended up landing on doing uh, mobile app retargeting and marketing and analytics, scaled that company up to pretty decent revenue scale, sold the business to Twitter in 2014, joined Twitter to help run their mobile app group, did that for a couple of years, and then left in 2016 with kind of the idea that we could use text and other tools in order to manage communication and overall management of like big distributed companies. So the initial idea was like a bunch of big factories and things like that, having no way to communicate with their workforce. So let's do it all and do it all on the phone. I went out and sold that, did a ton of demos and found out that people didn't really want that, but they were very interested in using text to communicate with their customers. Mm-hmm. And that's really what led us to, to attentive, which is a text message marketing and communication platform.
0: Uh, So was that the main pivot when building Attentive? I think it had a different name originally too, right?
1: Back in the day, it was called Franklin, which... um, Why Franklin? You know, something you learn is that people, especially people that you're you're friends with or know you, it's really hard to get negative feedback on something. Mm -hmm. And the name in particular is something that people are never comfortable telling you that your name stinks. You know, we had named it after Franklin, both from Philadelphia area, uh, liked Benjamin Franklin, ah. you know, liked the idea of like innovating. So that's why we called it that. Got it.
0: Not the turtle Franklin. That's what came to mind. Yeah, yes. <laughs> Not <laughs> that, that one, got it.
1: <laughs> it can be a turtle too, that's fine. Uh a fan of that too. But in any case, we ended up calling it Franklin and it was kind of confusing to people on the phone. And mm-hmm. when we decided to pivot, we said, you know, let's just make a clean break and, and sort of pick a name that, that we could get behind. And that's where it came to a tether.
0: I love it. Okay, so what did the early days of attentive look like? I mean, what was the product and how has it evolved to today?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, uh, the early days was really about building the minimum that we could possibly do to get the product live and scale it. So, you know, it was kind of the bare bare essentials, whereas, you know, today it's used by over 5,000, you know, real businesses at scale, sending, receiving billions of messages and offering a tremendous amount of features and functionalities. Um, that, that we didn't have back then. So it's it's really developed quite a bit uh, since since when we, we really started taking that product to market in the summer of 2017.
0: Mm-hmm. And what are you seeing right now in the world of texting? Because this is something that comes up a lot on the show where people think there's, you know, they're saying there's a lot of opportunity in this channel, a lot of untapped opportunity. And now brands everywhere are looking into this more. What are you seeing in the space right now? Like how are companies using this and what are maybe best practices or opportunities?
1: You know, the stats are kind of amazing because on the one hand, you know, more brands are starting to want to do it. You know, when we, when we started selling this in 2017, no one was doing it and it was very hard to get brands to try it out. Now it seems like a lot of brands in e-com and, and retail want to do it. But even that being the case, when we look at our hundreds of millions of SMS subscribers across our customers today. Still today, uh, about half of them, half those people, 50%-ish around there, are only signed up to one SMS program. And another like 30-something percent, maybe more than that, um, are signed up to two programs. So while the channel is something that people are beginning to embrace, it is not saturated, right? So that means that the average consumer here is still getting, let's say the average brand is sending one or two messages, maybe two messages a week. Person's only signed up to maybe one and a half, two programs that means that on a weekly basis, they're still only getting, you know, a couple messages on SMS. Whereas if we went to something like email, the average person I think is getting like 150, 200 emails every day. So, you know, thousands in um, a weekly basis as compared to like three or four for SMS. So I, I think that SMS is, is very, very, very far from saturation today.
0: Yeah. How do you guide your clients on creating good text strategies? Because I and I'm sure you've had this too. You get some text from a brand and you're like, no, like just no on everything you're sending me. I don't want to get spammed for a 5% discount over and over, or that you're offering me something that I never cared about versus the other ones. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Okay. Now I want to follow that link and actually buy that. And so how do you advise brands to think about this as a strategy?
1: Yeah, when we started doing it. You know, we looked at some of the brands that were doing it because it was it was a small percent, like four percent or something, of top one thousand retail. there were certain sort of companies doing it. But as you alluded to, a lot of their programs were just the same message every week or two, right? And it was like don't send the same thing over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, it is very different from email, right? I think the biggest mistake people make is they take what they're doing in email and they just move it to text. But it's you know it's so different because in email you're only going to have 10, 15, maybe twenty percent of people. Even opening it, you know, in terms of the actual content, click through, it's going to be like 1%. So you can be repetitive in email because a lot of people aren't going to see it. In SMS, they saw it, right? So you don't have to have that same concern, but it also means that you have to be creative around the type of messaging you send, you know, keep it fresh, keep it relevant. Sure, it's a reminder to shop, but you also want it something that, that delights the end consumer. So there are certain types of messages that you mentioned where it's repetitive. Have you sent this type of thing before? that will get the highest opt-out rates. Uh, And you do want to keep a close eye on those those opt-out rates. Make sure that you're not sending repetitive content and personalize the message. You know, we can do segmentation, we can do custom content in the message in order to personalize it, that sort of thing in order to make sure that it's personal. And then I think kind of divide the world up today into messages that, hey, I'm going to go send a message to my list versus messages that are automated. I think the automated messages based on, hey, you, you know, something's back in stock, that was out of stock that you're interested in, something's price changed. Those type of things are always going to be much more interesting to the consumer.
0: Mm-hmm. What's the most innovative strategy that you've seen within the past month or two where you're like, oh, that's pretty unique, no one's doing that. Is there anything that comes to mind?
1: Well, you know, we, we had a um, big product release we did a couple weeks ago um, called Attentive uh, Concierge. And this is something that I think we need to continue working to educate the consumer on, but is a really awesome, interesting experience. So the big idea is that when you walk into a store, there's almost always someone there to help you. Someone there to guide you, answer a question, hey, can I help you? Yeah, that comes in this size. Let me get to the right thing, follow up with you, whatever, right? But we don't have that really online. And I think being able to have that type of concierge service online to answer questions, be available, et cetera, customer service, all via text, is a pretty magical experience. So that's really what we're trying to do uh, with our attentive concierge product. And it's it's a lot of it is people powered. So a lot of it is still people behind the scenes doing it. It's not just some bot, mm-hmm. which means we can actually deliver a great experience to the consumer. So I think that's probably the newest, coolest thing that we've we've launched and are seeing pretty fantastic results on.
0: That's awesome. And is it the brand or retailer's employees who are on the other side of that and answering the questions or is that the attentive team? It's our people. Got it. Okay. Yeah. How do you know how to keep within their branding guidelines or how to like I'm thinking if you're like Levi Strauss, you have one kind of way that you speak versus like a Abercrombie if there's still a thing. I don't know, but they have another way of talking to the younger generation. How do you adapt to that?
1: Yeah, there's a couple of things. I mean, look, you think about how these companies have done it, right? Because, you know, how do they train their own people? What happens with their own people there? Mm-hmm. How good are their responses? The reality is that it's not very good at a lot of companies today. They train some offshore team that has like a booklet of what the company is and they respond. So like this idea that because they have the people in-house and pay them, and by the way, they're not in-house in most of these companies, it's some outsourced yeah. service company who has them across a number of different accounts and is offshore and doesn't know anything about the business and says Levi Strauss, whatever. Not that Levi in particular, I don't know how Levi does their support. But what I'm saying is that there's an assumption that these in-house people are great and that they have a great system and great training and great software and everything that they've rolled out and great process. In a lot of cases, I don't think they do. Um, And I think there's an opportunity to do that really great by understanding the brand, having a very set way that you're you're training people on that brand to serve that brand. And then for our side, we have people that are dedicated to particular brands. So, you know, if you're getting, you know, pretty decent volume, you're going to have people that are just working on your brand.
0: Yeah. How do you show who's on the other side of that message? I can imagine fun ways to be like, hey, take a selfie of yourself and send it to that customer. Then I have a connection. I know who I'm talking to. It feels like they're really there. Even if they are or not, like they are, but like, what kind of things like that do you do to personalize it on the other side as well?
1: Stephanie, did we like sign something before this saying that any product ideas we get from you, you know, we don't have to like pay you for <laughs> it? A late you can day? have them all. I always, I to write that down. Just give
0: out constant ideas all the time. I'm like, that'd be so fun to be like, hey, Shelly, like, we're already friends, and now I really want to go deep with you in this text message because I saw your friendly face. <laughs>
1: I think that's a really great point to make and we, we need to bring even more personality like that into our messages. I think we bring some mm-hmm. and and take it away from like the company to, to the individual and being able to make that connection because that is what happens in store. The part of the thing that is nice about in store, you know, when you go in store, other than being able to like, you know, hold the thing is, is to be able to ask the person and get concrete answers, right? Like when that person's great, it is a great experience in store mm-hmm. and it increases the the rate of purchase a lot more. I also think a little bit about on-site live chat, right? Like, I think on-site live chat today on mobile web is terrible because you go on a website, you type your live chat, you're waiting for a response, you go do something else, totally forget about it. And then Mm -hmm. you go back like a bit later and the person joined you and then they went away. (laughs) And then the cycle like repeats itself. So I think being able to have that same sort of type of live chat experience happen over SMS is just clearly much better.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree. There's this one company, I don't know if they're widespread outside of Austin, but they're called Alive Water. And you can basically get water delivered to you in these glass jugs. And every week I get a text from Christina and she's like, hey, Steph, like, do you want water this week? And sometimes I'll be like, no, delay it next week or next month. Always the same person. And I know she's always there. And she's even called before and left a voicemail. And so I feel this like connection with her, even though I don't really know who she is. If I would have seen a picture of her, maybe we'd be even more cool. But like you remember those instances of like, that's helpful and like flexible. Like, I feel like that's the name of the game when it comes to companies these days.
1: It's so helpful and flexible. And like, you know, I have had similar experiences as I'm sure other folks have had too, right? I mean, we were ordering a bunch of food and drinks to our office in New York a couple of years ago, which really was one of the reasons why I wanted to invest in this this type of product area. Because- it was the best interaction it was great i would just ping them and be like hey we need x y z by tomorrow can you do that and they would just get get it done you could just and there was no mm-hmm. it was it was a it was so magical and you complete everything in the text it was just great
0: yeah so when it comes to i was looking at the brands who use you like steve madden urban outfitters name drop name drop lots of big brands what do you see them doing when it comes to like innovation like how are they putting content in these text messages or like what kind of things are they doing in there outside of what probably a brand would come in and typically do, like sales and product stuff. Like, have you seen anything interesting um, with those companies?
1: Yeah, look, I think that the companies understand their buyer much more than we can, right? So we can give them a lot of tools to personalize and we can try to understand and give some tips on their buyer, but they're always going to know their buyers and their personas, you know, much better than we are. So they're able to take our personalization tools, segmentation tools, content tools, et cetera, and say, hey, I want to focus on just a particular audience and just particular type of people and send them this new product. I want to give them a VIP experience. I want to let them know about something early. Um, So for us, it's really just us empowering them with the tool set, but they're still bringing a lot of their creative processes to bear.
0: Mm -hmm. Got it. Do you have any benchmark metrics that you share with your customers? Like, here's a good click rate or here's like, how do you think about metrics when it comes to the world of SMS?
1: Yeah. I mean, at the top level of metrics, I think the goal has to be that you can drive over 20% of sales from the SMS channel. So if you're not doing SMS today, that should be your goal. If you're doing SMS today and you've been doing it for a bit, and it's still, you know, not getting close to that, and it's even still single digits or something. Then you should double click into why. And I think there's usually a couple factors on what's driving that that headline metric for me. Uh, number one, are you getting people to sign up? Mm-hmm. And for a lot of customers, most of our customers that we add today, our net new customers, are coming in with a list of zero, right? So they need to start from just going zero to sixty as fast as they can. So growing their SMS list is a really important thing. So we've built a lot of product to do that. I think we do that better than anyone. Um, When people migrate to us who have existing programs, we often hear and see metrics that they're growing their list many, many times faster than they were previously. So, you know, number one, I think, is getting that, that list growth right and constantly optimizing it because it's such a big factor to the end success of the rest of the program. You know, people will come to us sometimes, in October with no program. And they'll say, hey, we want to make a bunch of money on SMS this holiday season. And we'll say, well, we can make some, but like the real way to do that is to start building your list last January Mm -hmm. and build it the whole year. And then, you know, engage people um, come holiday. So, you know, when people think about holiday and making it impactful, it's like you got to do that work now um, to grow the SMS list now to be impactful come holiday.
0: Yeah. Or have you seen users being hesitant to put their phone numbers in place? I mean, I know I am. When someone's like, give me your phone number. I'm like, no, what do you want it for? <laughs> so like, like how do you see brands you know, getting these lists um, and like, what are they doing to want the customer to want to share that information?
1: Well, I think the key here is that you don't want the consumer to have to think about something. You know, it's the same way that taking your credit card out of your pocket, right? With your phone number, you kind of got to like think to type it in. And we kind of realized this, and we, we developed this technology back in, in 2016, 2017, we call our, our two-tap up, where someone can sign up to get text messages by tapping once to generate the text message, then tap again to send the message to the brand um, that says, I want to get messages. Because we, we, we do require you know, the consumer to give that consent and, and opt in to get those messages. But what's really cool about that is that the consumer doesn't have to remember what their number is. They don't have to type in the number. It's just tap once to generate the message, tap again to send it. So that's far and away our most popular way that consumers have for, for signing up to get text messages. It's, it's really fluid and I think it makes it a much more magical experience.
0: And that's on the brand's website that they have that.
1: That's on their website, but it can also be in social media. You know, they can, they can have a, a, a button on Instagram. You tap that generates the text message. It can be a, a landing page. It can be embedded in someone else's website. It can be clicked from, a, from an email. Um, it can be a scanned QR code. So there's a lot of different ways that we trigger our, our two-tap sign-up.
0: There's a stereotype of the average American worker whose life goes something like this. Go to work, come home, consume some kind of entertainment, go to sleep, lather, rinse, repeat. If you're listening to this ad, then I know that that life does not resonate with you. For the truly disruptive business leader, work doesn't stay at the office, and unwinding doesn't mean watching TV at night every single night. This is why we've created Mission Daily, a podcast that discusses the trends, habits, and ideas that thoughtful business people are contemplating every day. From quirky business opportunities to interesting investment ideas to the latest research in health and exercise and alternative medicine, and maybe even plant medicine. Who knows where we're going to go, but Mission Daily covers it all. We're releasing new episodes every weekday. So join me, Stephanie Postles, and my co-host, Albert Chow, as we discuss the subjects, thoughts, and trends that business leaders think about, but don't talk about. Publicly, that is. Break the status quo. Tune into Mission Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you there. Okay. So I want to shift over a bit and hear about you building up the company. First, how many employees do you have?
1: I think we have about 1400 employees today.
0: It's a lot of employees. Okay. So what did that look like growing to have that many employees under you? Like, how do you think about, you know, leadership styles and keeping your culture? What did that look like growing as quickly as you did?
1: I mean, it's tough. I've worked at a bunch of startups before, and you heard all the sort of culture stuff and, and whatnot. And I was always kind of cynical about it and said, you know, all these companies to say the same things in culture. What does it really mean? It's a bunch of BS. Um, I think that I saw when we went from, I guess it was about 150, 200 people, where the culture that was enforced just working together and stylistically needed to be more formalized. And that was the first time that we formalized our culture and created sort of like eight core values uh, around our culture. And then as we scaled up more and more and more, we felt like it was pretty hard for people to get direction because eight is a lot, right? So, you know, in the last six months, we refocused it on just four uh, core values that we've we've really tried to instill to people about what we're about. And I think if you get them right, recruiting should get mad at you. <laughs> because if you get it right, it should make recruiting's job a lot harder. I think that the biggest mistakes we've made about hiring people that didn't work out, and look, I I think it's the company's fault when people don't work out, right? I I think it's almost always the company's fault because the company didn't, the hiring manager, the company, whoever it is, they didn't think enough about what the characteristics were to be successful in the role. They didn't support the person enough when they joined the company. really is the company's fault for that not working out. And I think some of that does come back to Lack of clarity around what our real company values are, and I think when you have too many of them, it's hard to know what really matters. I, I worked at a place once that had like you know ten core values. Yeah, not a not a company I started, and it was like the values were contradictory. Like there would be one value. There's and so then, many.
0: They have to be <laughs> like directly
1: contradictory. And you'd be like, aren't value two and value eight like directly contradictory? And you're like, yeah, they are, but that's because it shows our balance. And it's like, no, that doesn't make any sense. So we, we try not to be contradictory in our core values as well. And I think you know, people should be able to go in an interview and when someone brings up values, they should just know, here's our core values. Here's four of them. I can remember them. I know about them. And when we talk about why someone you know, is performing or not, we can point to those.
0: Uh, okay, so what are your... Four that you whittled down. I through. thought you
1: might go that direction. Let's make uh-huh. sure so I can get them all. No, I'm just kidding. Um, the most important, though, to me is default to action, which is just this idea that speed is far and away the best offense as well as the best defense for business. And it means a lot of things. It means that you know you recognize that there are very few decisions that you make that you can't change your mind later. It also embraces a culture of changing your mind. And, and being able to, to kind of go, go, another direction when, when new evidence is, is available to you and lack of fear of something not working out, lack of fear of failure, you know, and saying, look, we're going to ship a bunch of stuff and a bunch is not going to work, but we tried a bunch of stuff and we're going to find something in what we try uh, to make it work. And I do think that's to me again and again, I come back to that and I tell people like that's the core thing. And if you're not okay with this idea that like, Hey, we might work on something a bunch for a month or two, and then we might just throw it away. And like, that's actually what made the business success. We talked about this earlier with, with, with Franklin, our initial business. But what we didn't talk about was that there are actually a bunch of customers that said yes to Franklin. So we had a bunch of customers. We actually had a major deal, like a, like a you know, seven-figure deal that was at the end stages of legal and was about to sign. I actually emailed them and I said, hey, we decided we're not going to do this anymore. We're doing something else. Wow. And I remember their response was like, what are you talking about? Like we're an enterprise company. We're at like the end of a two month legal process. We're signing this big contract with you. We're going to spend a lot of money. Are you crazy? Like this is a startup's dream. What are you doing? And we've looked at it and we just said, look, we don't think this business is going to be a big business. So like we're, we're, we're getting rid of it. But I think that is the one of the hardest things um, for companies to do. Yeah. I think that the second thing for us that, that I think resonates a lot is that hard work solves big problems. And, you know, kind of what that means is that we're not the type of company where people are going to go on a four day work week, right? We're not the type of company that's going to you know talk a lot about not working as much and making sure that there's always this this balance of not working or feeling like, you know, reduced hours and whatever. It's a company people that like to work. Like genuinely, our leadership team and our managers, like they all like to work. And I think when people don't understand, like you, you, either like, like there are some people that like working, and you want those people to work at your company. There's some people that don't, uh, and that's fine. That's great too. But you know, and you work at they, the other companies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of large tech companies you can go retire at to not really, you know, that you can go work at. And it's and I, I like to be real with candidates and say, look, there's you could go make a similar amount not working nearly as hard somewhere else. Now, will it challenge you? Will it be as interesting to you? Will it be something that you grow a lot in your career in? We're going to hopefully give you that. We're going to give you a challenge. We're going to give you growth. We're going to give you really something you can be proud of that you're building. But it's very different, I think, than what you might find at, at, at some other places where that's, that's not the case, where they really lean into those other uh, components more. The third one's called be attentive. And you know, to me, that's like a little self-explanatory, but like, it's the name of the company, of course, but it's also just like showing kindness and, and generosity, generally being nice to people and being, you know, not, not like a jerk and all that sort of stuff. So that's great. And then finally, our, our, our last one is never settle. And this mindset that we don't, we don't ever want to just like call it an a day and say that's okay and move on from something. We want to make sure that we're always kind of following through to, to leave everything we possibly can and deliver the best product to our customers.
0: I love that. Good four values. I feel like I could remember all four of them. So (laughs) thank you for sharing those. So what's keeping you up at night right now? Like what are the hard things you're working on? What's a hard project?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, across the US, there's a lot that's keeping people up at night. You know, there's a lot of crazy stuff going on and terrible things happening. And I think it's hard. You know, I think A, it's hard um, as an entrepreneur to be able to distance yourself from this stuff that impacts a lot of other people that's going on in society, and that's wrong. I think that's a hard thing about the job is to to be able to kind of compartmentalize and put a lot of that aside and say, look, my my first responsibility is to the company and to making the company successful, and that's really where you need to put your weight behind. You know, I think number two uh, is really at the scale we're at is making sure we keep that number one value, making sure we keep that default to action because as you get bigger and bigger, I think at a lot of companies risk is rewarded a lot less. You know, I have a saying about enterprise buyers that enterprise buyers, you know, number one, they want to buy the thing that doesn't get them fired, and that's also number two and three. Like there's, like that's what they buy, right? And there's a reason they do that because bigger companies become a lot less taking on risk, and that's ultimately why they lose, right? That's why businesses grow, get big, and then collapse again because they decide not to take risk. The market changes really fast, and you got to cont- you know, constantly innovate. So I think for me, it's just pushing on that default to action piece and making sure that we continue to question what we have now and, and change because the market's changing so fast.
0: Yep, yeah, That's a good way to frame that and think about that. I want to shift over to the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. This is where I'm going to ask you a question and you have a minute or less to answer. Are you ready, Brian?
1: I am I am ready.
0: If you could choose one book as or it can be a podcast or just some kind of material to be mandatory reading or listening material for all commerce leaders, what would you choose and why?
1: I do like the books by Andy Grove, you know, Managerial Leverage, and Only the Paranoid Survive. I think this idea of looking at your business as a machine and and constantly tinkering on that machine Um, I think sometimes when we think about innovation, we think too much about product innovation and not enough about innovation in every uh, division and how much innovation across every division can have just as big an impact sometimes as product innovation.
0: Mm -hmm. I like that. That's a good one. If you could go back in time and tell your younger version of yourself one thing, what would that be?
1: I think what I would say is uh, something that I would say to any of the listeners here if they don't already know this, which is that they are just as smart and capable as any of the big business leaders and founders and people out there. I think the more time that you spend meeting you know, the big bold names and other folks out there and everything, I think the more you'll probably realize that they're people just like you. And there's nothing to stop any of the people in this audience from Building those type of businesses.
0: I like it. That's great. What looks unsustainable today, but is actually just a trend that we haven't yet accepted?
1: Something that looks unsustainable today that ultimately will be sustainable. I think probably speed of innovation, you know, in general. There's a thought, I think, with the investment scale that happened last year in 2021 that a lot of you know, companies were overvalued and too much money went into the ecosystem and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's true that a lot of companies were overvalued and, and things get a little wacky. But I do think at the same time that there is more room than ever for innovation, that the building blocks to make a company are easier than they've ever been. You can scale up and, and build a company faster than ever. And then I think on the, the, the talent side, it's actually unbelievable what exists and how much it's changed in my professional career. And I've, you know, I've been working for about 15 years. 15 years ago, there was no LinkedIn. When I was leaving school, I was, uh, one of my jobs that was brought up was to go be an intern at LinkedIn from one of the early investors. And I was like, what's that? Like, that, it just started. So before LinkedIn, changing jobs and moving around was very hard. Getting a job was very hard. And once people got it, they kept it for a long time. Now people can hop around so easily, talent so much easier. This is so much better for innovation. I think that's the thing that blows me away is how much you can find people that hop around, that take new jobs, that move on to things. And that makes it so much easier for startups because the reason people stayed at big companies was the security. But you know what? Now they can hop around. They don't need to worry about that. They can take risks. I think that's just the LinkedIn and kind of the world of, of, of talent being movable and, and, and coupled with the building blocks of technology, I think the amount of innovation we're going to see and disruption is going to be just tremendous over the next 20 years.
0: Oh, I love that. I like the optimistic view on that where many other people might say something different. So I like your viewpoint. I'm sticking with that one too. It's
1: both <laughs> those things, right? Like look, yeah. the valuations were nuts last year and a lot of people got much more money than they needed or should have gotten. And things got totally wacky and the stock market was totally wacky, right? Because the multiples made no sense. But that's different from what I'm saying, which is that there's so much room for continued innovation in so many industries. And, and look, I'll, I'll say something else. I think there's overinvestment in areas where the buyer is the builder. So we're we're overinvesting in areas like developer tools and software for developers and, you know, whatever for developers that developers are building for themselves. And there's way too many of those companies, and there's not enough companies to serve everyone else and all the other problems that exist. So I love problems that aren't developer problems. I think there's so many different things to sell.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Okay. Last one. What's the next big step that you need to take? It can be at Attentive, or it can be personally. But what's that next big thing that you're like, you know, you need to
1: take? I think building a company is is really hard, and it's a huge achievement for anyone that can build a company to you know any level of scale—five employees, ten employees, whatever—even uh, just yourself. So I think that's that's really hard to do, right? And then you know, there's certain marks and scale of a company that it gets harder and harder to kind of keep up. And I think that for us, the, the question is, how do we build this into an enduring company? that, you know, 10, 15, 20 plus years down the line is still going to be a great going concern. You know, I think that when I talk about what I talked about just before with the speed of innovation and everything that's happening there, I think that building those type of enduring companies is going to get harder because there's more innovation at the bottom. And if you don't have the innovation muscle right at the top, then I think you're going to have a lot more competition than you've had over the last 50, 100 years where there wasn't that much competition. I even look at companies I started or were part of 10 years ago, and like there was a couple players. Now, so many other people can turn things on so much faster because you don't have to like go hire a big edge team to get things going. You can just kind of turn on AWS, flip a couple switches, and you're there.
0: Well, that was a great round. Thank you, Brian, for participating that. And thank you for coming on the show. Where can our listeners find out more about Attentive and yourself?
1: Yeah, so if they wanna find out more about Attentive, just go to attentivemobile.com. And there's uh, a lot of information about the company there. Uh, If you wanna find out about me, follow me on Twitter, Brian C. Long, Brian C. Long. And uh, yeah, that's about it.
0: Awesome, thank you, Brian.
1: Thank you, Stephanie.
0: listeners. Thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast.